0: It was finished on the cross. We left here Friday night, and if you can imagine, the, the cross was placed right here in the center of the, where the pulpit is now. And, and the only light in the building, it had become dark by then when we were leaving, and the only light in the building in this room was of a light shining upon the cross. It was finished. It was done. And we left with the, the word of hope That, yes, it was Friday, but Sunday was coming, and and praise God for Sunday, but imagine having been at the cross on that Friday, not knowing that Sunday was coming. You see, Jesus was finished. He was dead. He was in the tomb. Done. Gone. Gone. The Son was finished, but the Father... The Father was not, right? The Father was in the process of beginning to exalt and glorify the Son in a way that that no other person had ever been exalted and glorified. That no other spiritual being had ever been exalted and glorified. And that's the story that we get to, to tell today. Is of the Father saying, we're not finished on Friday. Sunday's coming, and it's here today. Turn with me to Luke chapter 24. If you're familiar with your Bible and the New Testament, the, the four Gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John all share a story of, of the crucifixion and, and the betrayal and, and the, the, the stories of Holy Week and the coming of resurrection. And, and they all, as, as you've probably heard before, they, they would be looking at this story of resurrection from different vantage points, telling the same stories, but maybe with some different insight or emphases. Depending on the crowd or the congregation, the the church, the people they were writing to. And so I want us to just look at these first eight verses of Luke 24 as we begin our time today. But on the first day of the week, at early dawn, they came to the tomb, bringing the spices which they had prepared. And they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they entered, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. And while they were perplexed about this, behold, two men suddenly stood near them in dazzling clothing. And as the women were terrified and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, Why do you seek the living one among the dead? He is not here, but he has risen. Remember how He spoke to you while He was still in Galilee, saying that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified, and on the third day rise again. And they remembered His words. They came to the tomb. It was early on that Sunday morning. I have a picture here of the garden tomb. If you've been to Israel, or I suspect that you've been to the, the garden tomb. Now there's two tombs that, that historically that folks would, would make a historical argument about the possibility of being the place where Jesus was crucified and, and where he was buried. The Church of the Holy Sepulcher is, is that long-standing traditional place uh, where the, the, the church has been built over the site of, of, of Cal, Calvary and, and is not too far from the tomb there, and all that's been uh, encased by a, a, a church over the top of it. And it's hard to, to really picture and to see the, the story of the crucifixion and of the resurrection take place there in that place where, where there are hundreds and thousands of people that go and visit each day. Now, the garden tomb was discovered in 1867, and it's interesting that that geographically it it lies outside of the the, the walls of old Jerusalem. It's located not far from a a major thoroughfare, a place where people would have been traveling back and forth from Jerusalem to other places, a, a place of high traffic, a place where the Germans would have been likely to make a statement about someone who was a a troublemaker, a revolutionary. And there in that place, there is actually a a, a a rock hill that looks like a skull. And just around the corner, almost literally, around the corner is this place discovered in the late 1800s called the Garden Tomb. And if you've been there, whether it took this story took place or not there, there is a sense of experience and of being present in this holy place where 2,000 years ago, Jesus rose from the grave. There are, are Christian markings that are consistent with the early churches, the earliest centuries of the church that have been found in and around this tomb excavations have discovered and shown that there have been at least two churches that that worshipped on this site. One as far back as the Byzantine Empire of the 5th and 6th centuries and a second church during the Crusader period of the 11th and 12th centuries. They've discovered churches were here in this place. This next picture actually takes us inside the tomb. Now the I suspect the metal bars weren't there back, back in the day, but uh, uh, have been added. But you can see, if you can see this picture, there's kind of three chambers there. As you would walk in the door and just right on the right, there are three chambers. And if this is the place where Jesus would have been laid, then He would have been laid in one of those chambers. And so you can imagine the women coming inside, coming into the, the tomb there, looking for the body. And they're encountering Two men. That's interesting, in the story of Matthew, the, 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 the angels meet the women outside of the tomb and, and say, come and see the place where he was lying. And invite them into the tomb. Notice the red cross there is a, is a Byzantine design. Certainly it's been touched up, it's been repainted. As the, the tomb was discovered, the, the, the markings inside the tomb would, would fade away at times. And so they've come in and they've restored that painting. And notice the Alpha and the Omega there at the bottom of that cross. Again, references to Jesus. And the women, as they encountered these two men, these two angels, were asked to remember. Remember in your grief, now remember in your shock. Remember what Jesus said. That He would be arrested, He would be tried by evil men, and and He would be crucified, but He would rise again on the third day. and, And I think they remembered. They went back to to share with the disciples and the other other disciples and the apostles, and they remembered the stories. And over these last weeks, we've been remembering these stories through the Old Testament. Through the Old Testament stories of the servant passages of Isaiah. And so today, take with me your Bible again, and let's go to the book of Isaiah. and, And we'll just focus and read these last three verses Of this particular suffering servant passage of Isaiah 53 but the Lord was pleased we're going to come back to this but the Lord was pleased to crush him putting him to grief if he would render himself as a guilt offering he will see his offspring he will prolong his days and the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand And as a result of the anguish of his soul, he will see it and be satisfied by his knowledge. The righteous one, my servant, will justify the many as he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will allot him a portion with the great and he will divide the booty with the strong because he poured out himself to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet, He himself bore the sin of many, and he interceded for the transgressors. Again, this this first verse here in, in verse 10. The Lord was pleased to crush him. The truth is, as I looked over this passage, this was the number one reason why the preacher shouldn't preach this passage, right? What do you do with this passage? that says that the Lord, the God, God the Father, was pleased. He was pleased to crush his son. Now, I don't know about you, but that, that sounds horrific to me. To think that, that I could ever find any pleasure in, in seeing my son crushed, or daughter crushed, and that I myself might find pleasure in doing that, So what do we do with this passage? How do we understand it? Of course, we're not the first to wrestle with this problem. (laughs) Many of you wrestle, many of you are are unbelievers. Maybe many of you are agnostic. You're not really sure because of passages like this. I'm glad you came with family and friends today. And maybe today you can begin to, to ponder and reflect on this question. What does it mean that the Lord was pleased to crush His Son? Is this some kind of divine child abuse? Is God some kind of monster? Well, certainly not. Are you familiar with the story, The Brothers Karamazov by Dostoyevsky? At one point in this powerful novel, the question of building a perfect society is asked. Here's a a, a portion of that text. Let's assume, and imagine this question being asked to you. Let's assume that you were called upon to build the edifice of human destiny so that men would finally be happy and would find peace and tranquility. If you knew that, If you knew that in order to obtain this, you would have to torture just one single creature, let's say a little child, who beat her chest so desperately in the outhouse, and that on her unavenged tears you could build that edifice, would you agree to build it? Of course, Elosha, one of the brothers, responds immediately, I would not. Or maybe you're familiar with the an allegory. An allegory by Ursula Gwyn of the in the early 1970s called The Ones Who Walk Away from Omelas. Who describes a utopian community with children playing and adults living in complete happiness with beautiful music, stunning architecture, no violence, total and complete satisfaction to everyone who's there, but only to find out that that happiness... That that beauty, that that society was contingent upon the ongoing torture of a malnourished, growth-stunted boy who was kept to live in the dirt and filth of a basement room below the very paradise in which you lived. Would you walk away from that kind of society? Or would you embrace the torture... An injustice of one for the perfect happiness and fulfillment of all the others. Is this what it means that God was pleased to crush His Son? So that all the rest of us could live for ever and ever and ever in perfect happiness and in heaven? Dostoevsky attempts to answer this question briefly through this youngest brother, Aloysia, who's appalled to hear of a utopia based upon this kind of condition. And he writes, But there is a being, and he can forgive everything and all, and, and for all, because he gave his innocent blood for all and everything, Oh you have forgotten him and on him is built this edifice. And herein lies our answer I believe. If he if the servant if Jesus would render would would give himself would offer himself willingly as a guilt offering That God's pleasure, and this word pleasure here means God's will, God's desire. That that His desire, His pleasure is not found in the torturing and victimizing of an unwilling person so that people can live in a, a masquerade of happiness or utopia while an innocent, helpless victim suffers eternally. But rather, God's pleasure is found in the submission of His Son, who willingly and with complete awareness and understanding offers himself as a guilt offering, bringing us shalom, which means peace and healing with God and offers the potential for peace and healing with each one of us. A son willing to take on the punishment, the guilt and suffering of others so that they might be healed and find shalom. You see, I believe that God's pleasure is found in His Son. His Son who declared, greater love has no one than this, that He lay down His life for his friends. I believe that God's pleasure is found in his Son who declared to his Father, not my will, but thine be done. I believe that God's pleasure is found in his Son who in John 17:1 offered this prayer. He offered this prayer moments before he was to be arrested. He offered this prayer, Father, the hour has come Glorify your Son, so that I, your Son, may glorify you. You see, I believe God's pleasure was found in his Son, who the writer of Hebrews says this, For the joy that was set before him, set before Jesus the servant, he endured the cross and he scorned its shame. I believe that God's pleasure was found in his son who Paul declares that God in Christ Jesus was reconciling the world to himself. You see the servant, the son's humble and violent death is not a victimized defeat, but is rather The son's greatest accomplishment so that what appears to be an act of injustice in the world of an innocent person being put to death unjustly is actually the greatest sacrifice the greatest picture of love that the world has ever known and this I believe is what God the Father finds pleasure in with his son, as his son willingly and obediently takes on the sin and iniquity and punishment of the world and of you and of me. Look at the next verse in, in verse 11. As a result of the anguish of his soul, he will see it and be satisfied. Do, do any of your translations there, the second, that second phrase, do they have the word life in there or light? Some of your translations do. In fact, if you'll look up here, the, the new, new International Version, I, I preach and teach out of the New American Standard. This is the NIV version. It says, after he has suffered, after this servant, after Jesus has suffered, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. So in our translations, we have a couple of choices. After he has suffered, he will see. Some of you have the word it in italics. That means it's not really there, but it helps the sentence to make sense. He will see it and be satisfied. Well, he will see what? It's interesting the the New American Standard and and others, if if your text doesn't have the word light or life in it, it means that your text was translated from the Masoretic text that was uh, put together in about 900 A.D., And if your text has the word life in it or light in it, it means it was translated from the scroll of Isaiah that was discovered about 50 years ago in the Qumran communities. So as we look at the the oldest scroll, the oldest Hebrew text that we have, which is the Isaiah passage, the Qumran scrolls, it has this word, this idea in here of of life. You will see the light, and the light, the word of life is added because the word light is a reference to life. And so now, what if we understood this passage is saying After he suffered death, after he suffered death on the cross, he would see the light of life. He would see light. And some have understood with this this text that's been added, some have understood this passage to to right after the the suffering of the servant to now be a prophecy of resurrection. Because the one who has died, who has suffered and died, has now been resurrected, is now able to see life and light powerful and he will be satisfied this word satisfied means he will be fulfilled he will achieve or fulfill his purpose and his mission and oh how the father will be pleased and find pleasure great pleasure in that and you know how the father responded to the son how the father responded to the servant well the scripture tells us on the third day The servant Jesus conquered the grave. And he rose from the dead. His father honored and and, and responded to that act of selfless sacrifice in a way that exalted Jesus. It, It brought him up from the grave. It gave him victory over death. Jesus was no longer in the tomb he was greatly exalted which if you go back and read earlier in the suffering servant passage it says that he will be greatly exalted by his father and here jesus is exalted by his father on easter sunday on resurrection sunday in philippians chapter 2 the scripture says that at the name of jesus every knee would bow and every tongue confess that jesus christ is lord to the glory of God the Father. God raised the Son and said you have the name above all names and every knee and every tongue every every tongue and every knee is going to bow before you and confess you as Lord, as Savior, as God. Wow! And then we have this beautiful picture in Revelation chapter 5 verse 12 of the angels and of all creation gathering around the throne singing and worshiping God in this way saying worthy is the lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing the son was finished on Friday but the father had work to do and he exalted the son and he defeated the grave and death and there's great mystery in this But oh, what a glorious picture and story. After he suffered, this servant will see the light of life and be satisfied and be fulfilled and be glorified and be lifted high. Verse 12 For he bore the sin of many and He made intercession for the transgressors. He bore the sin of many in this concluding verse. Jesus willingly bore our sin up earlier in verses five and six. We discover that this servant was pierced. He was crushed. He was chastened. He was scourged. But that His chastening brought our shalom, our peace with God. His scourging brought our healing. The bearing of our iniquity brought justification with many, It made many right with God. You see, the servant put himself in the place of our transgressions. The servant absorbed our punishment and the full impact of our guilt. The servant Jesus is that great intercessor. And even now the scripture tells us that he continues to intercede for you and for me. The apostle Paul says it this way. Christ Jesus is he who died. Yes, rather, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes, continues to intercede for us. The writer of Hebrews put it this way He said, He is able to save completely those who come to God through Him, through the servant, through Jesus, because He, this servant, Jesus, always lives to intercede. For them, for you, and for me. He sacrificed for their sins once when He offered Himself. This morning, I want to encourage and maybe even exhort us in this area of intercession. You see, intercession is more than just a prayer. Intercession is a way of life. Intercession is the way of life of the servant, Jesus. It is the way of life that we are called to as recipients of His gift of salvation. This word intercede means to go pleading to. To go and plead to someone on behalf of someone else. Jesus, the servant, pleaded, and He pleads on our behalf. One cannot offer intercessory prayer unless one is willing to live an intercessory life. You see, on the cross, Jesus offered the ultimate act of intercession. He pleaded and interceded for us on the cross as He bore our sin. You see, one cannot intercede or plead to God on behalf of of someone else, on someone who is needy, unless you are willing to become involved in their situation, to share in their griefs and their sorrows and their injuries. Otherwise, such prayer is simply a sham and a mockery. You see, this kind of intercessory prayer, this kind of intercessory life, is costly. And for this reason, there is so little genuine intercessory prayer in our midst. Church, life is hard. It's filled with struggles and difficulties, and we are a fragile people. Through heartaches, hardships, and brokenness, we eventually discover and come to the realization that we cannot bear or carry our own transgressions, our own struggles, our own diseases by ourselves. We need help. And Jesus offers the ultimate help through his act of love and grace as he intercedes on our behalf, as he carries our transgressions. You see, he is strong, but he takes on our weakness. And in doing so, allows us to experience healing and shalom and salvation. Yes, this selfless, sacrificial act cost Jesus his life. But the Father responded by raising Jesus from the grave and exalting him above all others. And Jesus continues to intercede. He continues to act on our behalf. And He calls us, He calls you and He calls me to intercede on behalf of others through our prayers and through our actions. Church, this is the message of Easter and this is the life that we are called to in response and in gratitude for Christ's intercession on our behalf. You see, our intercession for others should ultimately point them to the intercessor who bore their sin, who suffered on their account, that they might have life everlasting. You see, this is what pleases the Father. It's interesting as this servant passage begins, way back in verse 1 of chapter 53, the writer simply asks the question, Who has believed this message. Have you believed the message? That Christ the Lord is risen today? That Christ willingly, obediently, sacrificed His own life for you? Have you seen the light of life yourself? Have you seen God's healing? Have you you seen His salvation Have you experienced the power of the tomb in your life? And out of the darkness and struggles of your life, begin to see life and light and love. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whoever believes in Him would have everlasting life, would not perish, but have everlasting life. Do you believe? Have you received? And are you living that life of intercession and obedience for others? If not, today can be that day that you either recommit or commit your life for the first time to Christ Jesus. He died for you. He's ready to receive you will you receive him and live for him let's pray father we give thanks for this incredible gift of life we give thanks for the example of the son the servant and lord i know that today that you we've come to this place with so many different places in our lives some struggling some rejoicing some hurting some confused, and I know that Your Spirit would, would meet us at our place of need, that, that You are interceding on our behalf even now. So God, give us the courage to believe, to receive, and to live for You. As we stand and sing, I'll be at the front. There'll be ministers and, and deacons here to receive and pray with You. You be obedient. You be faithful as we sing in this glorious Easter Sunday. Let's stand.